Welcome to Mysteries to Die For and this toe tag. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is normally a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of a mystery. Today is a bonus episode that we call a toe tag. It's the first chapter from a fresh release in the mystery, crime, and thriller genre. I could speak thriller genre. Today's feature release is Reckoning by Baron Bircher. All right, you all are in for a treat today because we're not just going to do the first chapter. We're going to do a prologue, chapter one, and chapter three. A transitive nightfall. No child is brought into this world with any knowledge of true evil. This they learn over the passage of time. In my experience as a sheriff and as a rancher, I found this precept to be true. Time passes nevertheless, even if it passes slowly. Here in rural southern Oregon, sometimes it seemed as if it hadn't moved at all, advancing without touching Meriwether County, except with glancing blows. That is, until the day it caught up with us all and came down like a goddamn hammer. Part 1. Deal. Chapter 1. Ordinarily, autumn in Meriwether County would come in hard and sudden, like a stone hurled through a window. But this year, it snuck in, slow and mild, lingered there deceitfully while we waited for the axe to come down. The sky that morning was turquoise, empty of clouds, the altitude strong with elongated Vs of migrating geese and a single contrail that resembled a surgical scar. The narrows between the high valley walls opening onto the broad vista of rangeland some distance below. I had expected ice patches to have formed on the pavement overnight, but the weather remained stubbornly dry, even as the temperatures closed in on the low 30s. I tipped open the wind wing and let the chill air blow through the cab of my pickup as I stretched and drank off the last dregs of coffee I'd brought for the long southern drive from the town of Meridian. I had received a phone call at home the night before from an unusually distressed K.C. Sheridan. I had known K.C. for as long as I could remember, a pragmatic and taciturn cattleman whose family history in the area dated back to the late 1800s, much like that of my own. Three generations of Sheridans had stretched fence wire, planted grass, and run rough stock across deeded ranch land that measured its acreage in the tens of thousands, and whose boundaries straddled two separate counties, one of which was my jurisdiction. But the decade of the 70s thus far had not been any kinder or gentler to cowboys than to anyone else and Casey and his wife Irene had found themselves increasingly subject to the fulminations and intimidation of both local and federal government. While the Sheridan Ranch had once numbered itself among a dozen privately held agricultural properties in the region, Casey now found himself surrounded on three sides by a federally designated wildlife refuge that had swollen to encompass well over 300 square miles, a bird sanctuary, originally conceived under the auspices of President Theodore Roosevelt's White House, all of which would have been perfectly fine and acceptable to the Sheridan family, given the understanding that the scarce water supply that ultimately fed into the bird sanctuary 
belonged to the Sheridans by legal covenant as it had for nearly a century. I turned off the paved two lane and onto a gravel service road, headed in the direction of the ridge line where Casey sat silhouetted against the bright backdrop of the clear sky, mounted astride his chestnut roping horse. Casey climbed out of the saddle as I parked a short distance away, switched off the ignition and stepped down from my truck. Casey trailed the horse behind him as he moved in my direction, took off his hat and then ran a forearm across his brow. Then he replaced the hat back on his head. His hair and his eyes shared a similar shade of gunmetal gray, and the hard-scrambled nature of his existence as a rancher had been recorded in the deep lines of his face. What the hell am I going to do about these goings-on, Sheriff? Casey asked and cocked his brim in the general direction of the reservoir that was the size of a small mountain lake. Two men wearing construction hard hats were surveying a line on the near shore, where a third man studied a roll of blueprints he had unfurled across the hood of his work truck. Is that who I think it is, I asked. They aim to fence off my water, he said. My cows won't last a week in this weather. Have you talked to them, Casey? He nodded, about as useful as standing in a bucket and trying to lift yourself up by the handle. It's the reason I finally called you, Ty. I know what else to do. The vein on Casey's temple palpitated as his eyes cut toward the foothills and spat. I'll have a word with them, I said. You wait here. A wintry wind had begun to blow down the pass, pushing channels through the dry grass and the sweet scents of juniper and scrub pine. A harrier swept down out of a cluster of black oaks and made a series of low passes across the flats. I averted my eyes as the sun glinted off the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Shield affixed to the driver's side door of a government-issue Chevy Suburban. The man studying the blueprints didn't bother to lift his head or look at me as I stepped up beside him. Care to tell me why you and your men are trespassing on private ranch land? I asked. The man sighed, scrutinizing me over the frame of a pair of steel rim reading glasses. He had a face that put me in the mind of an apple carving and a physique that resembled a burlap sack filled with claw hammers. Who the hell are you, he asked. Ty Dawson, Sheriff of Merriweather County. That's the name of the county you're standing in. He took off his reading glasses and slipped them into his shirt pocket, hitched a work boot up on the Suburban's bumper, and offered me an approximation of a smile. Well, Sheriff, I'm with the Fish and Wildlife. That's an agency of the federal government, as I'm sure you're aware. And I have a work order that says I'm supposed to put up a fence. And that's exactly what me and my crew are doing here. I gestured upslope where Casey Sheridan stood watching us, his arms crossed in front of his chest. You're on that man's private property, I said. The government man made no move to acknowledge Casey. I don't split hairs over this type of detail, Sheriff. The work order I've got lays out the meets and bounds of the line, and me and my crew just install the fence where it says to. It ain't brain surgery. Scoot over, I said, and let me have a look at that map. I ought to radio this in, he said. You do whatever you think you need to do, I said. But you do it while I'm looking at your map. He lifted his chin and looked as though he was conducting a dialogue with himself, then finally stepped to one side. I studied the blueprint for a few moments, looked out across the rock-studded range, and got my bearings. 
Looks to me like the boundary line for the bird refuge is at least 100 yards to the other side of this reservoir, I said. Your map is mismarked. The agency don't mismark maps, Sheriff. Well, they sure as hell mismarked this one, I said. You need to stop your work until this gets sorted out. That's not going to happen, he said. Care to repeat that? There's clearly been a mistake. No mistake, he said. You need to step away, Sheriff. Let me explain something to you, I said, removing my sunglasses. It's the law in the state of Oregon that the water that comes onto Mr. Sheridan's property belongs to Mr. Sheridan, period. If you fence off his reservoir, especially this late in the season, you're not only stealing his water, you're murdering his herd. The agency man lifted his foot off the bumper, set his feet wide and faced off with me. He slid both hands into the back pocket of his canvas overalls and rocked back on his heel. Now it's my turn to try to explain something to you, Sheriff. I've been given a job to do, and I intend to do it. If you don't walk away right this minute and leave me to it, I will be forced to radio this in. Long and short of it is, the guys who will come out here after me will have badges too, and their badges are bigger than yours. I won't allow you to trespass, I said, onto private property, steal this man's water, and kill his livestock. He glanced at the two crewmen staking the line and then returned his attention back to me. Are you going to arrest us? He asked. What is with you agency people? I asked. Why is it that your first inclination is to slam the pedal all the way to the floor? When me and the boys come back, he said, it won't just be the three of us no more. I'm finished talking about this, I said. Pack up your gear and go. I could feel his eyes boring holes into the back of my head as I picked my way back up the incline where Sheridan stood waiting for me. I can tell by your stride that you had the same kind of dialogue experience I had with that fella, Casey said. Bureaucrats with hard hats, I muttered. I ain't no cupcake, Dawson, but you know those son of a bitches have been tweaking my nose for years. Those men are part of the federal agency, Casey, and make no mistake, if you're not careful, they will try to roll right over top of you. What do you call what they're doing right now, he asked. I don't intend to lay down for it. I'm not saying you should, I said. Get on the phone and call Judge Yates up in Salem. Ask him if he can slap an injunction on these clowns until we get it sorted out. Sheridan's horse pinned his ears back and began to shuffle his forelegs, responding to the tone our conversation had taken. Casey calmed the animal with a caress of its neck, dipped into the pocket of his wool coat, snapped off a few pieces of carrot, and fed it to the gelding from the flat of his palm. I'll do it, Ty, but I swear to God. Casey, you call me before you do anything else. You understand? Chapter 3 I helped my ranch hand foreman, Caleb Wheeler, buck a load of hay into the loft while we waited for the veterinarian to arrive. One of my breed cows had stopped eating, and we tried every remedy we knew, and nothing worked. I didn't want to risk losing her. As a result, I was late getting into the station that morning, a little past ten by the time I arrived. Sam Griffin, one of my deputies, sat alone at his desk near the front door, sipping coffee from a styrofoam cup. 
Where's Pal? I asked as I pulled the door shut against the brisk wind. He's answering a call out at the Kinnett place, he said. The water company called. Looks like the old coot pried off the front of his meter box again and filled it with concrete. The office was still cold inside, in spite of the burnt smell of singed dust blowing out through the furnace vents. I peeled off my gloves, but I left on my hat and coat and muffler as I sat down to thumb through the pile of mail on my desk. I was about to say something about replacing the furnace filter when the phone rang. Griffin answered it before it had time to ring a second time, and I watched his expression turn grim as he pressed the headset to his ear. Griffin rode in my truck with me, and a half hour later we pulled off the road and onto a single-lane dirt track that led to Cataquin River Resort. The word resort was such a stretch that it nearly constituted fraud, though the river itself was magnificent and home to some of the finest fi fly fishing in the corner of the state. I parked at a diagonal outside the swing gate to block the entry from any further traffic until we completed our work inside. Griffin strung up crime scene tape between the gateposts while I picked my way through the hip-deep growth of bitterbrush, snowberry, and fern in an effort not to disturb any evidence that might still be on the roadbed. A cone of pale sunlight shone through the gap in the pine canopy, and the air smelled of humus and loam. The soil beneath my boot soles was spongy from yesterday's rain and gave way under my weight. Any usable evidence that had existed prior to last night likely had been washed away, but anything more recent might still have a chance at preservation. Is that you, Sheriff? A man's voice called out from inside the seclusion of old growth, and I climbed up on a stump of deadfall to scan beyond the foliage. I caught a glimpse of a red plaid moving among the shrubs and waited as a scrape of footfalls on the gravel grew nearer. Step off the road, I called out. I motioned for Sam Griffin to follow me, and we pressed our way together through the boss cage. We entered the clearing a short distance further on, where a middle-aged man wearing a red lumberjack coat and crumpled moth-eaten cowboy hat stood by himself, packing a wad of tobacco snuff into his jaw. He was of median height, beardless but for two or three days without a razor, and thick around the middle, like a man who might once have been an athlete. A sheen of perspiration glazed the rounded contours of his face. Doug May, he said, and slid the tobacco tin into the shirt of his pocket. I'm the one who called you. I introduced myself and Deputy Griffin and asked Doug May to repeat what he'd previously told my deputy on the phone. I guess you could say I'm the caretaker around here, but mostly I'm a fly fishing guide, he said. I was supposed to meet up with Mr. Weir and take him out on the river this morning. You live in one of these cabins, I asked. Oh, hell no, he said, and spat a stream of brown tobacco juice onto the trunk of a hemlock. I live up in a trailer there a ways, besides the oxbow. There's only six or seven of these old cabins left standing anymore. Nobody lives out here full time, except for me, I guess. How did you come to know Mr. Weir, I asked. May glanced at his wristwatch, then buried his hands deep in the pockets of his coat. The wind shifted direction and the odor of stale spirits drifted from his pores. He's been fishing with me a couple of times, he said. Is Mr. Weir the owner of the cabin? No, sir, he said, as I watched the man's posture change. He's a guest of Mr. Strickland's. Can you spell that for me, Sam asked. 
I watched as Griffin scratched the name in his notepad. I followed the direction of the fishing guide's eyes as they drifted away from me toward the river. You okay, Mr. May? I asked. You're looking a little green around the gills. Can I just show you where I found the body, Sheriff? Jordan Powell, my other deputy, pulled in and parked behind my truck about 15 minutes later. He was trailed by three forensic techs from the Criminal Investigation Division or the Oregon State Police, each wearing coveralls and carrying black canvas bags. You got here in a hell of a hurry, I said to the lead CID technician as he followed me to the small cabin where the body had been found. Captain always says Sheriff Dawson don't ask for help unless he means that he wants it right now, the tech said. Well, when you get back to your office, tell Captain Rose he just moved up a few notches on my Christmas card list, I said. Powell ducked under the yellow tape Sam Griffith had strung up across the porch landing and held it for the techs as they passed inside. What's the deal, sir? Powell asked me. Suicide? Mm, maybe, I said. Thing is, there's a second bullet hole in the wall behind the couch. Well, sometimes they lose their nerve, he said. Sometimes they get murdered by somebody else, I said. Powell leaned in for a closer look. Do you know who the victim is? Clark Weir, I said, and showed my deputy the Portland Police Bureau ID and badge holder I had already sealed inside of a plastic evidence bag. The dead guy's a city cop, he asked. A detective, I said. Powell bit his lip and his eyes dropped to the floorboards. Well, shit. My thought exactly, I said. What do you want me to do, boss? He asked. I hooked a thumb in the direction of the clearing where Doug May had been pacing circles around the victim's parked car, checking his watch every few seconds and spraying brown spittle into the woods. The caretaker there told us that everybody else has been out of here for the past several days, I said to Paul. Why don't you poke around these other cabins anyway and see what you find? For myself, I knocked down for another inspection of the Smith & Wesson 38 that lay on the plank floor beside the sofa, taking care not to disturb it until the techs had shot photos and lifted prints. From behind me, I heard the front door hinges squeal and got to my feet in time to see a shadow of a tall, broad-shouldered man outlined inside the doorframe. Sunlight streamed through the kitchen window and illuminated his features as he stepped inside further. He was dressed in street clothes, bell-bottom slacks, and a white-collar shirt that he had left open at the neck were an ornament that looked like an animal horn dangled from a narrow gold chain. His long hair and mustache were the same shade as the leather jacket. His sideburns, meticulously groomed, angled and sculpted all the way to his jawline, more Los Angeles than rural Oregon. Did my deputy sign you in, I asked? This is an active crime scene. The black one told me, Deputy Griffin, I corrected. Deputy Griffin suggested you wouldn't mind if I join you, he said. Now why would he suggest something like that, I asked. Because I'm a cop, he said. Well, I was about to turn the scene over to crimes and coroner, I said. Why don't you and I move this conversation outside? Instead of moving toward the door, he sauntered up next to me cocked his head and stared at Clark Weir's empty eyes. This man is PPB, he said. I'm aware of that, I said. I found his ID in his pocket. Question is, what are you doing here? And how did you get here so quickly? Lights and sirens, he said. 
You have lights and sirens out here in the boonies, don't you, Sheriff? Well, I took hold of his elbow and spun him around. Like I said before, let's take a walk. Doug May stopped dead in his tracks as we moved out of the cabin and down the porch steps in the afternoon glare. The movie star cop shielded his eyes with the flat of his hand, and the brief look the two men exchanged made it clear they were acquainted. I nudged the cop toward the footpath that led to the river, shot a glance over my shoulder as the caretaker attempted to disappear into the depths of his lumberjack coat. I don't believe I caught your name, I said, when we came to a halt a short distance away. In fact, I don't believe you offered it. The translucent waters of the catequin moved swiftly along the scree, and the air smelled of lichen and rusted leaves. A water bird dipped low across the smooth surface where the current was creased by a snag in the flats. Detective Dan Halloran, he answered finally. Portland, SID. SID, I said. That's vice and narcotics. You've grazed a good distance off your pasture, Detective. He began to reply, but stopped himself short. I waited in silence, watched his eyes as the course of the water bird as it plucked something out of the river. Mr. Strickland phoned me this morning, the detective offered. He asked me to look in on things. Dean Strickland is the owner of the cabin where the victim was found. Is that correct, I asked? That's right, Halloran said. Who is Mr. Strickland to you, detective? He's an attorney in town. What kind of attorney, I asked. The important kind, he said. How are you acquainted? He shared his toys with friends from time to time, he said, and winked as though we were communicating in some sort of code. You're saying that you and the deceased are among Mr. Strickland's friends, I asked. He can be a very generous man, Halloran said. I didn't exactly believe Halloran, but it didn't mean he wasn't telling me the truth. And Detective Weir, I asked, what's his history? Halloran looked away from me for a long moment, stared at the steep cliff on the far side of the river. Clark Weir was my partner. I was escorting Detective Halloran back to the entrance of the resort, where he parked his unmarked police-issue sedan, when Jordan Powell called out to me from somewhere deep inside the fern overgrowth. Looks like one of the cabins has been burglarized, Powell said, as he caught up with us. Now, Jordan, I said, I'll be with you in a minute. There's a fresh pair of tire tracks out behind the place, Powell added. Good, I said. Get a plaster cast of them before it starts to rain again. Nice work, Deputy, Halloran said, and dipped into the breast pocket of his leather jacket, withdrew a business card, and tried to pass it to Powell. Keep me posted. I snatched Halloran's card from his fingers. Do you think it's going to be useful to you to be a deliberate pain in my ass? I asked. You are way out of line here, Detective. Pump the brakes, sunshine, Halloran said. I'm just trying to help you. My partner just committed suicide. It hasn't been determined yet, I said. Excuse me, he said. Did you see the same scene I did? How many suicides shoot themselves in the center of the forehead? I've seen it before, Halloran said. And fire two shots in the process? Well, plenty of suicides learn their, lose their nerve the first try, he said. This isn't your first investigation, is it, Sheriff? You just used up your free pass, Halloran, I said. Have a pleasant drive. 
back to Portland. A message awaited me when Sam Griffin and I returned to the office that evening. Outside, the lights along Meridian's Main Street glowed muted yellow in a fog that had rolled in from the gorge. I studied the phone number that had been scrawled on the pink message slip. Wasn't one I recognized, but the exchange was for Portland Metro. I dialed half expecting my call to go unanswered at this hour. Deputy Chief Overton, came the voice on the other end of the line. I had never met Overton, but knew him to be the PPB's number two man. His tone was like a cross-cut saw, freighted with impatience and fatigue. Sheriff Tyler Dawson, Merriweather County, I said, returning your call. Well, I appreciate you getting back to me, Overton said. I understand you met with our detectives earlier today. Dan Halloran? Why, I didn't exactly meet with him, I said. He appeared on my crime scene, unannounced and uninvited. Well, we're all understandably shaken by Detective Weir's suicide, he said. Apparent suicide, I corrected. He brushed past my comment as though he hadn't heard it. I would appreciate it, would consider it a courtesy, in fact, if you could clear the case as expeditiously as possible, Sheriff. I would be in your debt. The entire department would be. I make it a point to clear all of our cases as expeditiously as possible, I said. Well, that's good to know, he said, but just in case, Detective Halloran will be staying at the Portman in Meridian to make himself available to you if you need him. Well, I strongly suggest that you order your detective to go home, Deputy Chief. A brittle silence hung on the line before Overton gathered himself to reply to me, and when he finally did, he made no attempt to disguise either his contempt or his condensation. You're familiar with the police bureau's past troubles, Sheriff Dawson? Hard not to be, I said. For several well-publicized weeks about a decade ago, a virtual pageant of law enforcement officers and elected officials had been paraded in front of the Senate Rackets Committee in Washington, D.C. to testify as to a roster of unflattering allegations of corruption. Much more recently, certain members of the police force had been found to be deeply involved in a sophisticated network of narcotics, prostitution, and illegal gambling operations. It had all been very ugly, protracted, and embarrassing for the city, and the voting public's collective memory was proving to be far longer than anyone had anticipated. PBB still walks on eggshells, as you might imagine, Sheriff, he said. We don't need another scandal here. I'm sure you understand. And there it was. This conversation had nothing whatsoever to do with remorse, morality, or redemption. Your district attorney hid behind the Fifth Amendment, I said, and your mayor refused to answer the committee's questions about payoffs. With due respect, Deputy Chief, your PR problems couldn't register any lower on my list of things I give a damn about. My remarks were met with a silence so complete I thought he hung up on me. Nevertheless, he said, with exaggerated patience, I would appreciate it if you would keep us in the loop. I'll let you know when I've completed my investigation, I said. In the meantime, please order Detective Halloran back to work in Portland. I slept that night inside a tangle of sweat-dampened sheets 
and the nightmares of a far-off war. Not the war from which we had so recently been extracted, but the one that had already been forgotten. All right, so there you have the prologue, chapters one and three of Reckoning by Baron Bircher. You'll have to buy the book for yourself and read it and see what little tasty reader treat Baron has left for you in chapter two. Reckoning was released from Open Road Media Mystery and Thriller and is promoted by Partner in Crime Tours. It's available from the Amazon link and other book retailers. You can find the link in the show notes. About Baron. Before he became a full-time writer, Baron Bircher spent a number of years as a professional musician and founded an independent record label and management company. Baron is the winner of the Silver Falchion Award for Hard Latitudes, winner of Killer Nashville's Reader Choice Award for Southern California Purples, and Best Book of the Year Award for Fistful of Rain. He has also been nominated for the Nero Award, the Lefty, the Forward Indie, the Claymore, and the Pacific Northwest Spotted Owl Awards. Barron's writing has been hailed as The Real Deal by Publishers Weekly, Fast-Paced and Engaging by Booklist, and Solid, Fluent, and Thrilling by Kirkus. Alrighty, so here's my review. So Reckoning is a Ty Dawson mystery, but the story itself is in the conspiracy thriller subgenre. Sorry, I can say that word, subgenre. It's the 1970s and Portland, Oregon detective Clark Weir is found dead in a fishing cabin hours from home. Everyone from Weir's partner to his commander wants the case closed quickly as a suicide. But Sheriff Ty Dawson has questions that the evidence isn't satisfying and he's gonna keep digging until he gets the answers. So the bottom line is reckoning is for you if you like cheering for the underdog and calling out injustices for the sleazy, dirty lies that they are. Strength of the stories. So as I said, it's labeled as a Ty Dawson mystery. It's uh, Ty's fourth. Uh, but the story does fit more accurately into the conspiracy thriller genre. And for those of you who wonder, well, what is a conspiracy thriller? It's one where the protagonist investigates a crime or an anomaly to ultimately find out that it is a small part of a much bigger story. So Reckoning does begin with the discovery of Weir's body, which you just heard in chapter three, but the storylines of the attempted cover over by the Portland Police Department and the woes of the elderly rancher, that would be Casey Sheridan, who's being harassed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they get equal screen time. Each of these three, three storylines are interesting and compelling, leaving the reader wanting to know where it's going. This is Dawson's third story. I have not read the previous two, and I did not have a problem picking the story up. If there were Easter eggs, they were subtle gifts for fans of the series that did not detract for the new reader. Because this is an established character, Dawson and Meriwether County cast are refined and well-developed. The pacing is strong and consistent. There wasn't a section where the story dragged or my attention waned. Dawson is juggling so much, there isn't time for the mundane. So where did the story fall short of ideal? Having the finished the book, Oh, several days ago now, I continue to think through the storylines and their resolution. It's a testament to how into the story I was. For the most part, I was very satisfied with the solutions, but as often the case for me with thrillers, I have questions. There you have Reckoning. Buy it, read it, post a review. If conspiracy, th 
conspiracy thrillers aren't for you, recommend it to a thriller-loving friend. So Reckoning was promoted by Partners in Crime Tours, who represent a network of 300-plus bloggers and offer tailor-made virtual book tours and marketing options for crime mystery Man, my tongue just all of a sudden has gotten a knot in it, hasn't it? For crime, mystery, and thriller writers from around the world. Founded in 2011, PICT offers virtual book tour services for well-established and best-selling authors, as well as those just starting out. PICT prides itself on tailored packages for authors with a personal touch from the tour coordinators. They do an awesome job. For more information, check out their website, partnersincrimetours.com. Link is in the show notes. So we are wrapping up here. Join us next week for the next mystery in the Things That Go Jack in the Night series, episode six, When in Doubt, Blame the Jackass by Kira Jacobs. We are happy to announce that this season's companion anthology is now available in paperback and ebook. Support our podcast by purchasing a copy for yourself or the whodunit lover in your life. Thanks everyone for listening and Jack, take us out.